it's very important that we keep continuing creating spaces where the global south children can share their stories and influence policies so that we can start to change that narrative and create the agency around us acting on this crisis. You're listening to Hope Act Thrive by Be the Future. Or we like to call it HATS for short. And you, my dear listeners, are our Mad Hatters. HAT is an inspirational podcast for guardians of the next generation. Whether you're a planet-conscious parent, groovy grandparent, fab foster carer, terrific teacher, awesome auntie, or any other member of the extended family. We're having conversations with leading doers, thinkers, and shakers in climate action that will inspire you to stay optimistic, feel part of an ever-growing movement, and take actions that fit into your busy lives. Just like you, we want to create a better, greener, fairer future for the kids in our life. So, who are we? I'm Sally Giblin, an environmentalist, writer, and parent, and co-host of this podcast. I'm the one providing the Aussie accent. And I'm Helen Hill, and I'm an educator, author, and designer. The one with a very exotic British Bolton accent. Hello, and welcome to the Hope Act Thrive podcast. Today's guest is Noli Fuyani, who lives in Cape Town, South Africa, and has extensive experience in supporting youth-led and intergenerational grassroots activism, mentoring young girls and women, and connecting young children with nature. She works with preschoolers to grandmothers, supporting them to feel empowered and take action in their local community. Among many hats, Noli is founder of Black Girls Rising and serves as climate education lead at the youth-led African Climate Alliance. She supports diverse intergenerational communities from marginalized backgrounds in her hometown of Cape Town. She's mentoring some of the youth leaders involved in the landmark climate litigation case against the government in South Africa. Norley was also part of the mother-led delegation that went to COP26 and is a 2021 Climate Parent Fellow. This episode is supported by Our Kids Climate, a network of parents from across the world who are uniting to protect the kids we love from the climate crisis. Check out the show notes for this episode to learn more. Helen's lost her voice, so you've just got my Aussie accent today. In this conversation, we'll talk about connecting marginalised kids to nature, amplifying the voices of marginalised communities, and what a future defined by environmental and social justice could look like. Welcome to the podcast, Noli. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's wonderful to have you here. I know you've been doing some wonderful work and you've got the partnership through Our Kids Climate on the Parent Climate Fellowship. So fabulous to get you on here today and be able to have a chat to you. So I guess we'd love to start with your belief around, you know, engaging children and caring for the planet from when they're quite young, which is absolutely something that we believe in at Be The Future as well. Can you share with us why you believe in nature education for young kids? Yes, definitely. I mean, I I grew up in Bugaletu in a township, which is in a marginalised community. So, I mean, growing up, I didn't have a privilege of having access to public green spaces nor um, seeing tall, beautiful trees and flowers around me. And that sort of like became my narrative. And while I was older, I then took it upon me to change that because I saw how it just impacted me engaging 
on environmental issues because it was very hard for me to care for, for nature and act. And, and so then I realized that we needed to start at a very young age by engaging young kids in primary schools to really inspire them to, to care and just really fall in love with nature. Yeah, I think that's, that's so true, isn't it? And I think, you know, how can you be expected to protect something if you haven't been given a chance to actually fall in love with it and fall in love with nature? So it's incredibly important, isn't it, to try and get that access to, to green spaces. And so what do you believe are some of the best ways to try and get more young children, particularly children who are marginalised, access to green spaces? Because I know you've mentioned there are quite a lot of disparities that do exist in South Africa in terms mm-hmm. of that access. I mean, even before answering that question, I think there's a perception that people of colour don't really care about the environment. And I mean, that assumption has existed for a very long time and has debunked like the just of, of Black people having access to green spaces. And we often don't really connect the racial disparities in access to these green spaces. I mean, for example, I work with a community called Kylie Chain Cape Town which is on the outskirts of Cape Town. Majority of those kids, they live in shacks, um, informal settlements, where they don't have access to water, um, don't have access to basic human needs, you know, like drinking water, sanitation. And I often like make the comparison of like these two kids. I'll say Sizwe, who is growing up in that environment and on his way to school, he passes a dump site and that's just his scenery. And then you have John, who is growing up within the city centre of Cape Town, um, surrounded by beautiful mountains, the ocean. And so then if you will take those both of those kids and tell them that the world was coming to an end or even like, I mean, something that's close to their hearts, maybe the dolphins were being instinct. The child that would act first would be John, the child that's more exposed than Cesare, who has no access or even has probably never seen a dolphin in his whole entire life, even though he's growing up in a city that's surrounded by beautiful oceans. And therefore, it, it makes it very important for these kids growing up in marginalized communities to to get access you know to these spaces so that they can see and and be aware but then also to nature their curiosity and also reconnect you know with the environment so that when situations like that arises then they also can deeply feel and want to act and be the change Absolutely. And I think you've done a lot of work to engage with children in marginalised communities around caring for nature and connecting to nature and education around the environment. Can you talk us through some of the work you've done and the things that have had the most success? I was in university, so I studied environmental education and I was on a mission to spread awareness, you know, about environmental issues that are affecting our planet. And I was very fortunate that I stepped into the education scene when the department was integrating environmental education into the school curriculum. But the issue is that the teachers were not skilled and trained. Most of the schools lacked resources. Again, didn't have green spaces. If you, a student in a township in Cape Town, or in fact, 
most of the cities around South Africa, minimum the number of kids is like 40 and above. So there's not even like space for movement. And I then really wanted to create something that the kids could will be able to move, something experiential, something fun, and then decided to also look at an existing issue that the kids could relate to, you know. Um, and waste was one of the things. I mean, if you go anywhere, you travel anywhere in Africa, waste is an existing issue. And it's something that um, a lot of people from marginalized communities can relate to and dialogue and talk about because it's they see it in their daily lives. There's dumb sites everywhere. And, um, and one way to make that fun we I then decided to use the earthworms and decided to bring in worm farms into the schools and the farms then became a tool to really engage kids in a very fun experiential way about waste management because what the worms did is that the kids will bring in organic waste from home and they will feed the worms and the worms will make compost and then they will harvest that compost and learn to plant their own vegetable garden. So in a way, we were engaging them, but also the way we were engaging their communities and families because then these kids were going back home and telling their parents not to throw away their kitchen waste because they needed to bring it to school to feed the worms. And it really transcended what they were learning in the classroom to the relevance of the complex environmental and social issues that are currently confronting their communities. And once they acquired a lot of those skills, then really were curious and wanted to learn more and wanted to engage and wanted to be in the forefront of climate action. That's really wonderful. And I think the fact that you were focusing on something that could then ignite that intergenerational understanding and change at home is really important too and focusing on the the fun aspect and something so practical so I can completely see how that would be something that could resonate and really take hold in communities and so I guess I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into what life is like for some of the children that you work with a billion children today are facing a very high risk of immediate harm from the climate crisis you know and experiencing impacts right now today and children from marginalised communities and of colour are the most affected. And, you know, they're already living that very future that I think a lot of us who aren't living that right now are fearing. Can you talk us through what life is like for some of the marginalised children that you work with? Yes. Cape Town is one of the oldest, you know, and the second largest um, city in South Africa. And uh, I think our current population is more than 5 million but it's also the most segregated city, which stems from the legacy of the apartheid and the colonial government. So there's a lot of social and income inequalities. There are areas called the townships where it, they are mostly like marginalized. And the one that I do a lot of work in it, I think I've mentioned it before, it's called Kailicha. And Kailicha, it's mostly informal settlements. An average of like 40 to 50 families are sharing one communal tap and six toilets. And kids and families often travel more than two kilometers to get access to that clean water. There's a high rate of unemployment, there's crime, and I mean, many social issues. And this is 
a reality, you know, for a lot of the kids. And we get to see how when we then start to speak about the agency of climate change and we know that a lot of those communities really like adaptation capacities because how do you adapt to a situation where you are already lack um, basic human needs like water and sanitation and then you hear you know from the world saying that oh we've got 10 years you know to adapt to the climate crisis and then you see the realities and you're like no I mean it's happening now people are being impacted now and you see how also it's not just now the effects are definitely going to impact the future of the children that are growing up now we have now a privilege of breathing clean air, but who knows 10 years down the line if that's going to be an issue. I mean, we are really seeing it in some of our areas in South Africa. Like, for example, there's a, a community called Emalasheni, which has coal mines. And currently in that city, I mean, right now at this moment, while we are taking a breath in, probably there's a child or a mother who are taking their breath out and dying from the state of the air quality in that environment. A lot of the parents, a lot of the moms, they having to leave their jobs, you know, to care for their sick kids. There's a, a high rate of TB, of asthma. And there was a study that was done that proved that more than 80% of the young people are already affected by the climate crisis within that community. And so it just breaks my heart, you know, to, to see, to witness that. And just seeing how the future of the children is being robbed in front of our eyes and, and our government is just not taking this seriously and not acting. We're not seeing the agency in mitigating the situation. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking to hear you paint that picture and, and talk about all of that. And it's, it's incredibly disheartening sometimes um, when you really think through some of the lack of action, particularly at the government level. So I guess to to dig into that then, so how can we amplify the voices of people from marginalised communities and particularly children as well? I think the first thing is just creating spaces where the children can tell their own stories because I would often hear people saying, oh, I speak for the kids. And I always ask myself, why can't they speak for themselves? Because they do have voices. The onus is on us, you know, as adults to really empower the young children to own their voices and to speak up. Because, I mean, I also come from a culture that really um, oppresses women. I mean, we are taught not to scream, not to shout and to look down just because of our culture. It's a very patriarchal culture. Men are being seen as kings and, and women, and then we have to bow to them. And so, I mean, for young kids, especially girls growing up in that environment, they really lose their voices. And therefore, then when they are put in situations where they have to scream and shout, they can't because they've never been taught to do that. And we really never empower like young kids to scream and shout so that they can know that their voices matter. We need to start encouraging that from a very young age and continue creating spaces where 
kids can share these stories, you know, can share these realities of how they are currently being impacted or affected by the climate change so that we can see the agency, but also start to change the narrative, the narrative of what is coming out from these big conferences like COP26 is based on the global north. And it doesn't really speak to the reality of the global south. And that's why you will hear things like it's yet to happen or we've got 10 years to act. Whereas if you interact, you know, from the grassroots level in Africa, you get to see a different reality of communities that are already being displaced from the climate crisis and therefore it's very important that we keep continuing creating spaces where the global South children can share their stories and influence policies so that we can start to change that narrative and create the agency around us acting on this crisis. So I think what you're saying about changing the narrative is so important and thank you for speaking to that. And just on changing the narrative. So what do you believe that the future could look like if we achieve environmental and social justice, particularly in the global south? I think what the future could look like is having empowered, um, well-informed young people who are in the forefront and influencing policies and taking up space in in parliaments, you know, being presidents and really seeing the way of using innovation to mitigate environmental issues that are affecting people and thinking outside the box and finding ways to greening our schools, greening our communities. And just also, I think for Africa is us really honoring our indigenous knowledge and returning to the source because these big concepts you know like sustainability I mean if I can think of my grandmother I mean she was born in a village and they lived from the land you know they had their livestock they had their garden people helped each other they were not extracting too much from nature they knew when to take and when to give back And I think if we can really go back to that and really see nature as a source of life and really honor it for that and not see it as a thing to be distracted, we can really find ways of being in harmony, you know, in nature and, 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 and also because also nature has a way of healing itself, you know, and it's just for us to create those spaces and honor it so that it can regenerate. You know, South Africa, there's a thing called Ubuntu, which means I am because you are. And now because of all of these disparities and everybody's living for themselves. So the more we can go back to that and know that, I exist because you exist. Therefore, we need to coexist together, including nature. The more things like natural disasters will be less. So I think if young people can honor that, honor the source and go back to their roots, 
we can have a green future to look forward to. What you're saying resonates a lot and I think we do have a lot to learn from communities that have traditionally lived a lot more in harmony with nature and need to listen to those perspectives a a lot more. And so what gives you hope for the future? It's the kids that I work with. Like I'll make an example. There's this girl called Yola Gogwana. I met Yola when she was 10 years old. You know, she was part of my eco club. Remember when she came into the club and she had no knowledge and the more she was learning, you know, and engaging and the more she was curious and she wanted to know more. And when she then realized, you know, that her circumstance and how she was living was partly because of climate change, she really wanted to be in the forefront and be part of change. And I mean, she lives in an inform like in a shack, you know, she also travels like more than two kilometers to get access to water and she shares a toilet with like 55 other families. But yet she didn't take all of that and say that, well, I'm already affected, therefore I'm not going to do anything. And she really wanted, she wanted to inspire more youth to be aware to a point where now she's running an eco club in a community where she's teaching more young people about these issues because she always says, like, if I knew, you know, from a very younger age, I would have done more. And so I don't want other kids or my peers repeating that same issue. I want them to be empowered so that they can have a choice and know that this is happening. Therefore, I have a choice to sit and be comfortable with how I live or I can make a noise and and do something to change the situation. And so when I think of that, it just gives me hope. Thinking 10 years down the line, what she's going to be doing. I mean, she's already sitting in panels with presidents and, and she's one of the youngest members to be part of the Children's International Network. The youth are very fierce and they don't take things lightly. They want change and they're just not sitting and hoping that change is going to happen, but they are in the forefront fighting for that change to happen. So that gives me hope. I think it's a beautiful story to end on. Thank you for chatting with us today, Gnoli, and we really appreciate you sharing your stories and perspectives. Thanks so much for joining us. Your initiation into the Hatter tribe is now complete. We really hope this episode inspired you and that you're coming back for more. If it did, please review, subscribe, and share this episode with a curious, climate-conscious friend. It makes it possible for us to keep having these conversations for you. And there's lots more where that came from. Check out the show notes for more details on this episode and our fabulous guest. And if you just can't get enough of us and manage to grab another few minutes peace in your day, do come hang out with us on social channels, where we share real tips for real parents and help you to turn eco-anxiety and gloom into fun and playful action. And not forgetting, you can regularly see us making a fool of ourselves on Reels. Together, we can hope, act, thrive.